Well, good morning to everyone. If you're new, my name is Jamie. I'm one of the pastors here. It is my honor and privilege to invite you to open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. You'll find 2 Corinthians um, in the New Testament. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the chair in front of you. And uh, you'll find that our passage is on page 965 of the Church Bible. Here at Cornerstone Pickwick, we work through books of the Bible a little bit at a time. And we've made our way in this letter, Second Corinthian letter, to chapter 4. I'm going to knock this thing over. Um, and we are going to be reading from verse 1 down to 6. Second Corinthians 4, 1 to 6. We'll camp out in this passage for the next 45 minutes or so. And um, so I'll read the passage, pray for our time together, and then we'll get to work. Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, how desperately we need you this morning. We come as frail vessels to your word. With our minds easily distracted, easily pulled away from the central meaning, the central truth of your word. As we come and we ask that you would have mercy on us. Have mercy. And heal our blindness. Open our eyes. Enable us to see your son. So that we may become like him. And please you in all that we do. And say. And think. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. A Middle Eastern terrorist, believing himself to be doing God's work, is killing Christians. And this terrorist was born in the city of Tarsus as an Israelite and a Roman citizen. He's brought up in a strict first century Jewish home in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. 
In his adolescence, he took an education at the feet of a highly respected Jewish scholar named Gamaliel. And in his 20s, he was so zealous for the traditions of his ancestors that he began advancing beyond many other Pharisees of similar age. His knowledge of God's word was surpassed only by his devotion to it. So zealous he was that he became a leading persecutor of the way. A disturbing new Jewish sect claiming that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah. He had been resurrected from the dead after being crucified by the Romans on Passover. One day, while traveling on assignment to arrest Christians in the city of Damascus, a blinding light from heaven knocked him to the ground. And he'd heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus of Nazareth, the voice answered. Rise and go to Damascus. For I have appointed you to be my witness to the Gentiles, to open their eyes, that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, to receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. That blinding light had blinded him, so he had to be led into the city. And there, A man named Ananias, a follower of this Jesus of Nazareth, found the apostle, prayed for him, and something like scales fell off of his eyes, and Saul could see again. He got up and was baptized. And to everyone's surprise, this terrorist turned into a Christian, a Christian known in some circles as Easter worshipers. But he began vigorously, convincingly, to preach the good news of this Jesus of Nazareth, his life, his death, his resurrection. And he was fiercely opposed by his former employers. The hunter of Christians was now being hunted. Paul, which is his Greek name, was chased from town to town, preaching Christ and starting new churches all along the way. One of those towns was the town of Corinth. One of those churches was the Corinthian church. And Paul had a long and storied history with the Corinthian church. And so if you've been with us at any point during this series, you undoubtedly remember much of that history. It's been a long, difficult decade of dealing with the Corinthian church. And yet the apostle had not given up hope for the Corinthian church, though he had been rejected by them and opposed by them, maligned by them, ignored by them. Paul loved the Corinthian church, and he was devoted to them. Though many times they had brought him to tears, though many times they had even made him angry, made him feel lonely, he had never given up hope on them, and he had never forgotten them in his prayers. This was his ministry. They were his ministry. He'd put Christ before them, proclaimed the truth of Christ to them, and fully expect that the Spirit of Christ would transform them. This section of 2 Corinthians is a foundation for us as a church, 
but it's also here for us as an encouragement. This passage is for the discouraged, for the downhearted. This, this passage is for those who are disheartened by the, their own ministry of the gospel in their life. This is for those who have friends and loved ones who are far from Christ. This is for those parents of prodigals. Those who are weary in the battle against sin. Those who are troubled by the trajectory of our society. Here the apostle encourages us to take heart. Take heart. Knowing that when Jesus is faithfully held forth, God will shine his light on him and bring sinners to faith and grow his church. Here is your encouragement that when Jesus is faithfully held forth, God will shine his light on him and bring sinners to faith and grow his church. This passage can be divided into three parts. The first in verses 1 and 2. We look at the method of our ministry. The second, in verses 3 and 4, the obstacles to our ministry. And lastly, in verses 5 and 6, the power behind our ministry. So you're welcome to follow along in the backside of your worship guide, if you like. There's space there where you can take notes as we go. But let's take a look at verse 1 and 2 again in more detail. Therefore, Paul says, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Well, this passage opens with the word therefore, and if you're part of our proclaimers class, you know what to do when you see a therefore. You find out what it's there for. You go back and you see. Paul seems to be referring to his ministry of proclaiming the gospel. His ministry is to hold up Jesus, to herald him the good news of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and the hope for eternal life. In so doing, he expects that the veil will be taken away and God's people will see the glory of God in Jesus and turn to him by faith. That's the ministry he's referring to. You can see this in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, which we read a couple of weeks ago. And it is fundamental for our understanding to this passage. So if you don't mind, let's read it again. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, if you have it open in front of you. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. But this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Paul's saying, we herald Jesus. We put him up here. People see him and they're transformed. They see his glory and they're transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Having this ministry to hold forth Jesus Christ, that's what we do by the mercy of God. And because that's our ministry, we do not lose heart. Why don't we lose heart? Because the actual work of gospel ministry is not really being done by us at all, is it? It's being done by the Spirit of the Lord. This is from the Spirit. The success of our ministry is not dependent on us. 
It's the Lord who opens the eyes. It's the Lord who lifts the veil. It's the Lord who brings sinners to repentance. It's the Lord who builds the church. Do not lose heart because you don't control the outcome. Like Paul, we all just faithfully hold out Jesus for all to see, and God does the rest. This is why Paul goes on to say that he won't resort to tricks and gimmicks to get people to come to church, nor will he resort to tricks and gimmicks to get Christians to respond But we have renounced, he says, disgraceful or shameful underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning. This is what he said earlier. We won't peddle God's word. We aren't hucksters tricking people into the kingdom. These phrases here carry the idea of doing anything to get people in church. Resorting to secret, even shameful things to attract people. Paul's referring to those who will do just about anything to, get, to garner a following for themselves. It's a Machiavellian sort of the ends justify the means sort of method. In Paul's day, there were those who would travel around the churches who would give these eloquent speeches and garner a following from which they would receive compensation. He refers to those folks back in chapter 2, verse 17. Well, you should know that those folks who do that sort of thing, they still exist in our day, as they did in Paul's day. There are plenty of folks, I'm sure you know, who resort to gimmicks to get people to come to church. Some churches give away cars on Easter. I know a guy who dressed up as the Grinch for his sermon on Christmas. There's one guy who rode a bull onto stage before he preached. One dude flew in on a zip line, which I'll be honest with you, that would be really fun. Some resort to tricks to encourage participation in a carefully planned, spontaneous baptism service. One megachurch had several members pretend to come forward. Now, I'm all for worship gatherings being done well and the music being great and the lighting being fine and the sound being clear. But I'm not for gimmickry. Where is the line? When do we cross that gimmicky line? Like, is a big screen okay, but a zip line isn't? Where is the line? Well, the answer is, The line is where Paul draws the line here, employing shameful, underhanded ways, practicing cunning methods, which if exposed would cause embarrassment. The line is crossed when the church becomes a bait and switch. We bait people with something and then we switch it out for something else. We mustn't forget that we serve a murdered Savior. We mustn't forget that last Sunday, a couple hundred people in Sri Lanka died when their churches were bombed. If that happened, 
Last Sunday, here in Piqua, I wonder what our attendance today would be like. We mustn't forget that Jesus calls us to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, and to follow him. If we're putting together services that rival Las Vegas in entertainment, how do we expect to bid people to come and die? How should we expect people to worship under the threat of persecution if they came to be entertained? Furthermore, Paul draws the line in tampering with God's word. Resorting to underhanded, cunning, tampering methods of twisting God's word. Which, interestingly enough, are the very same tactics once used by a serpent in a tree. Methods which twist God's word and turn God into a means to an end. I dare say, the biggest threat to Christianity in the world today is not ISIS, is not terrorists who strap bombs to their back. The biggest threat to Christianity in the world today is not atheism, and it's not political leftism. The biggest threat to Christianity in the world today are those who have tampered with God's word, promising health and wealth to those who have enough faith. The prosperity gospel being exported from American shores distorts the truth of the Bible and undermines the very gospel itself everywhere it's preached. It turns God into a means to an end. If you have enough faith, God will heal your body. If you have enough faith, God will prosper you financially. On the cross, Jesus died to purchase your blessing, which all you have to do is have faith to grab hold of it. The prosperity gospel is idolatry. It turns God into a bloated carcass where greedy sharks come to feed their lust for money, health, control. It turns God into a celestial bellhop genie in a lamp. You just have to rub by enough faith and it'll come out and grant your wishes. It's repulsive. The problem with the prosperity gospel is not that it promises too much, but too little. God the Son, by His death on the cross, purchased the healing for our greatest ailment. The judgment of God for our sin. The righteous judgment of God against sinners. And he purchased for us on the cross our greatest blessing. Eternal life. The prosperity gospel seeks to inoculate God's people from the very means that God regularly uses to make us like his son. Suffering. Turns worshipers of God into worshipers of health and wealth. Pastor John Piper writes The critical question for our generation 
and for every generation, is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness, with all the friends you've ever had on earth, with all the food you've ever liked, with all the leisure activities you've ever enjoyed, with all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you've ever tasted, and no human conflicts or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? What is your eager longing for the afterlife? Is it to be with Christ? Or is it to be with everything that brings you pleasure? If that's the case, my dear friend, you're an idolater. Paul renounces these satanic methods. His method is simple. An open statement of the truth. Cornerstone, may we never make excuses for God's truth. May we never tamper with God's truth. May God give us grace to strive to always herald the undiluted, unadjusted, unvarnished, timeless truth of God. May we never be pulled away by cultural winds. May God enable us to stay anchored in the Bible, verse by verse, precept upon precept, until Jesus returns or calls us home. Consider what Paul says next. He commends himself to everyone, everyone's conscience in the sight of God. His motives are pure. His conscience is clean. He's speaking clearly and openly without pretense or without deceit in the sight of God. It should sound familiar if you remember back from when Steve preached a few weeks ago, Coram Deo, in the sight of God. We are ministering the gospel of Jesus Christ in the sight of God. We strive to live with clear consciences before the Lord. And so we speak His truth openly, with no hidden motives, with no agendas. We just preach Christ and Him crucified. The foolishness of the cross, the unassailable power of God to change the worst of sinners into the greatest saints to the glory of God. Expecting that when Christ is heralded, God will shine his light and people will be changed. But also expecting, as has happened for all of Christian history, we will be rejected. We will make enemies. We will wear bullseye. We will be ridiculed. We will be cornered. We will become easy targets for a world drunk with its own ideology and preference for self-rule. Which is why Paul goes on to explain the obstacles of our ministry in verses 3 and 4. These are the obstacles to our ministry. First, our gospel is veiled. He says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. And then he says, blindness. In their case... Those who are perishing. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. The ministry of the gospel has many obstacles, insurmountable obstacles. The gospel is veiled to those who are perishing. It is blinded, Paul says, 
the, the minds of the unbeliever is blinded by the very enemy, by the God of this world. He means Satan, the devil. He's a very real created being. A conquered foe, to be sure, under the lordship of God, to be sure, but being permitted to keep unbelievers under his power. And he has blinded their minds to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of God. If you're not a Christian, that might be offensive to you. I suppose it would be offensive to you to read in the Bible that God says that you're blind. But you would admit, I think, that it is true. There's something that Christians see in Jesus that you just don't see. There must be a glory in Jesus that you're not seeing. Otherwise, you'd be following him. What if that's the reason you came to church today? What if that's the reason that God ordered the events of your life in order to bring you to church today? So that as Jesus has sung about and preached and lifted up before you, you would see and God would shine his light on Jesus and the scales would fall off of your eyes as they did Paul and you would see the glory that we see and you would turn to him for the forgiveness of your sins. That's how all of us have come to faith. We were all blind, and God opened our eyes, and we saw Jesus. We saw His glory. We saw the excellencies of Christ. We saw His beauty, and He became to us most precious. And it so changed us that we could never imagine a single day without Him. Many of us can never even fathom a single day in our life where we didn't speak to him in prayer. Where we didn't encounter him in his word. He's so ultimately precious to us that even if we could go to heaven and have all the pleasures that we could ever want from this life, but not Christ, that would be like hell to us. Because the things of this world are actually a means to an end. And Christ is not a means to an end. He is the end for us. That's why we tell everyone about him. That's why the the gospel that we proclaim, precious to us, though it is, is veiled to many. And yet we keep proclaiming. We know many will not believe. And yet we know that that doesn't take anything away from the gospel. John Calvin wrote, The sun is no less resplendent if the blind do not see its light. So we keep proclaiming. We keep praying. We keep holding out Jesus for the world to see, for Piqua to see. Because we know that God heals blindness. He removes the scales He does the work of regeneration because we know that when we proclaim Jesus, people will see him and he will open their eyes and they'll be forever changed and they'll leave all and follow him. 
Friend, don't give up on your unbelieving family member. Don't give up on your unbelieving friend. Don't you stop praying for them. Keep praying. Keep proclaiming. If you have a wayward child or a wayward grandchild, you keep praying. You keep holding out Jesus to them. They're still alive. There's still hope. You still keep praying for revival in Piqua. Don't lose heart. Remember who's backing your ministry. Remember his power. The same God who created the universe with words is backing your ministry as you proclaim his son. Verses 5 and 6. This is where we'll end our time together. The power of our ministry. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is the power of gospel ministry. And this is why we don't proclaim ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord. When Paul's, Paul and his companions encountered resistance to the gospel wherever they went, even in the Corinthian church, they understood the power of the gospel ministry. They understood that as they herald the glorious gospel of Jesus, God's people would see him and be changed. The solution to the Corinthian crisis was a sight of divine glory. Paul knew that as the Corinthians would see Jesus, they would be changed. And for us as members of this church, there's an important lesson here. As we seek with God's help to maintain the lamp of God in this place, to maintain gospel witness in this community, proclaiming Jesus is our highest priority. Proclaiming the excellencies of Christ until Christ is all and in all. Four years in, and there are bound to be difficult days ahead. Times of testing, times of contraction, times of uncertainty about the way forward, unsure about what to do. We must remember this, Cornerstone. The answer we need is to see Jesus. We need to know the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Colossians says that in Him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. If you want wisdom, you look to Jesus. If you need knowledge, you look to Jesus. Study Him. Herald him. Preach Christ in the calm. Preach Christ in the crisis. The Corinthians had been through a crisis. 
And Paul well knew their solution. A sight of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. After being opposed by the Corinthian church, how easy it would have been for Paul to just try to garner support for himself. To begin to defend himself by saying, well, I've done this and I've done this and I have this supporter over here and this supporter over here. And so my number is greater than the other side. He could have played the apostle card. Don't y'all remember? I'm an apostle of Jesus. There's only 12 of us. I'm one of 12. You're not getting any more. I'm the foundation of the very church. But he knew that that would have limited success. So he says, I'm not going to proclaim myself. I'm going to proclaim Christ as Lord. In times of crisis and disagreement and frustration, what we need more than to know about the situation is to know more about the Savior. Paul preached Jesus as Lord, and he preached himself as the Corinthians' servant for Jesus' sake. Now, if I may offer a small critique of my beloved ESV translation. The word servant here in verse 5 is to light. The actual word is slave. Now, of course, the English translators probably went with servant because they understand that English readers, when we hear and see the word slave, we're thinking 18th, 19th century chattel slavery. And that's not what's being referred to here. That was a racially motivated demonic stain on this nation's history. It's not what he's referring to at all. This word refers to someone who, for whatever reason, has entered into a master-servant relationship with another person. Some might enter that kind of a relationship because they have a big debt to repay or something. But it just refers to one person who is fully committed to another person. They are duty-bound as a slave to their master. And Paul refers to himself and his companions as slaves to the Corinthian church, servants for their sake, for Jesus' sake. So he's not trying to win loyalty to himself. He's trying to win loyalty to Christ. He views himself as their servant. And they've received this mercy, this ministry by the mercy of God to serve. To serve the church. Well, it seems that Paul's conversion is never far from his mind. He was a persecutor of Jesus' church. And God showed him mercy. What had Paul done to deserve God's mercy? He was literally on the road to the place where he would arrest Christians. He was literally in the act of trying to destroy God's church when God saved him. So what did he do to deserve God's mercy? What aisle did he walk to become a Christian? When did he ask Jesus to come into his heart? God threw him down on the ground and saved him. What did Paul deserve? An eternity in hell. 
for being a persecutor of Christ's church. These are some pretty heavy words that Jesus said to him, aren't they? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And yet God showed him mercy and entrusted to him the ministry of the gospel. Paul owes everything to Jesus. That's why at the beginning of this passage he says, having this ministry by the mercy of God. Everything Paul does lives in light of that mercy that he received on that road to Damascus. He knows that he's on borrowed time. He didn't deserve anything that he has. Whatever breath he takes is grace. And if you're in Christ, God has done precisely the same thing with you. No less dramatic than the Apostle Paul. Like Paul, you were once on a satanic mission as an enemy of God, an enemy of God's church, committing treasonous decisions to live your life however you pleased. You deserved God's judgment, but God instead chose to show you mercy. He knocked you down and shined His light on the glory of God in the face of Jesus. And you saw Him. And you turn to him by the very faith that he granted to you to believe. He gave you the ministry that he gave to Paul, appointed you to be his witnesses, to open the eyes of the blind so that they would turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, to receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in Jesus. Same ministry. You are in the same business as the Apostle Paul. Like him, you are a proclaimer of the excellencies of Christ. And knowing that, as you do, you proclaim. Consider how Paul describes his conversion in verse 6. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Oh, how I love the precision of the Apostle Paul. You see all those little connectors there? He shined into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of of God in the face of Jesus. Here's why we don't lose heart. The power behind our message to proclaim the gospel is the very God we're proclaiming. God, the creator, the one who created everything out of nothing, is still creating life from nothing. He's still creating beauty from ashes. We don't lose heart because God is still shining his light. He's still breathing life into dead bodies. We don't lose heart. We proclaim and we pray. We don't need gimmicks. We don't need tricks. We have the light of God's word. So we proclaim 
and we pray. Understand that God is not asking us to win debates with non-Christians. We don't have to have the best arguments. We just simply have to hold forth Jesus Christ crucified and say, see him. We're not being asked to change anyone's mind. We're not being asked to change anyone's heart. We're being given the privilege to hold out Jesus and say, see him. So if you're discouraged, brother, sister, in your prayers, in the proclamation of the gospel in your life, take heart. Don't lose faith. Open the Bible. Read with abandon. Share him with others. If you're in the trenches of the battle with temptation, you need to see Jesus and show him to others. You might feel yourself to be in a season where you're lacking purpose. Something's off. You're more frustrated now than you have been. Well, I want you to know how thankful I am that the Lord brings us into seasons like that. Usually it's to remind us our priorities are off. It's a little bit like when you program your GPS and then you have to take a, a wrong turn and then your GPS just freaks out. It can't, it's like it can't think anymore. It's like there's blinking lights. It's making all kinds of noise. Trying to reroute you. And if you're not delighting in the Lord and sharing Him with others, the GPS on your life is freaking out. Your priorities are off. And the Holy Spirit's just throwing up all of the little signs saying, look, this is, this is why you feel off. You're supposed to. We have to draw a straight line between ourselves and someone else, helping them follow Jesus. And if we're not, our priorities are off and the GPS is just going to keep freaking out. So if that's you, if that's the season you feel yourself to be in, I would encourage you to open your Bible, to delight yourself in the Lord, and to share Him with someone else. Who has the Lord placed into your life that could use some encouragement? Who could you take to breakfast once a week and study the scriptures together? Maybe you have a Catholic friend at work who's never heard the real good news of salvation by faith. Maybe you have a non-Christian at work who's never really understood who Jesus is and what he means. Maybe it's a new person in our church. Pick one person this week. Pray for them. Invite them to study the Bible with you together. For those of you who are already doing that, if you're not seeing change, don't lose heart. 
keep proclaiming. Keep holding out Jesus and praying. Knowing that when Jesus is faithfully held forth, God will shine his light on his son. And he will cause sinners to turn to him in faith and he will build his church. What we proclaim is not ourselves, but Christ Jesus as crucified. If God is going to build this little church here, he will build it on the only foundation that he has ever built it upon, and that is his son. The proclamation of Jesus Christ is the brick and the mortar of the Christian church. So if you have a family member or a wayward child that you've been praying for, just keep praying. Keep holding out Jesus. God still raises the dead. Please stand to your feet for the prayer of confession. At the end of our services, we take a moment, we go to the Lord and we pray a prayer of confession because we understand that even though many of us are Christians already, we're also still sinful and we understand that God is still merciful even then. And so we go to Him every week and we confess our sins before Him knowing that as we confess those sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us. And so let's do that now. Father, our God, the great and compassionate God of mercy, we come to you because you have been so kind to us today, once again shining the light of your glory on the face of your Son. And oh, how we love to see him shine, light giver, shine all the more. Will you shine in the darkened hearts of every sinner here? All of us who have lived without knowledge of your truth, shine light on that truth. Let us see Jesus. Let us be transformed by him. We confess, Lord, how quickly we leave the God we love. How easily we are distracted by the things of this world. How quickly we respond to gimmicks and tricks. Give ourselves over to messages that sound good. Father, forgive us. Forgive us for having lost sight of the glory of Christ. For taking our eyes off of Him. For living for ourselves and living in our own strength. Forgive us for ever treating you as our servant making you into some kind of genie to grant us wishes. Show us mercy and keep us, keep us from ever making you into a means to an end. Father, will you grant this church the gift of discernment? May we know your truth so well that we're able to discern imbalances and errors, especially those of the prosperity messages which are so prevalent in our day. Protect us from itching ears, following the God of our own belly, 
keep this church from acquiring elders and preachers who succumb to the spirit of the age and lead us into error. Grant to us to proclaim the truth of God faithfully and boldly. Make us your proclaimers of your excellencies, uncompromising and unafraid. Infuse boldness into our prayers. Strengthen our hands as we lift up Jesus. Strengthen our voice as we proclaim Him. Give us confidence in the power of your gospel to save the lost and build your church. For the glory of Jesus' name.